Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special event for the Neon Festival of Independent Theatre, uh, titled Simply Kosky in Conversation. We didn't think that needed any embellishment. Um, I'm Brett Sheehy, Melbourne Theatre Company's Artistic Director, and this gathering at South Bank Theatre is being held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. On behalf of MTC and all of us gathered here, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and also pay my respects to their elders past and present. A few quick thank yous. I want to thank Virginia Lovett and all of the MTC colleagues who've helped support, nurture and manage this Neon Festival. I want to especially thank MTC's associate producer, Martina Murray, who is our holistic producer. <laughs> our holistic producer of the Neon Festival and the Neon Extra program. Thank you to Jeff Taylor for your support in presenting today's event as part of the City of Melbourne's Melbourne Conversations series. Thanks to the McGeorge Bequest at University of Melbourne and its committee members who are here today for helping bring Barry Kosky to Australia. Thanks to Peter Bridges for his assistance in helping wrangle Barry uh, to navigate his relentless schedule uh, which enabled this tour to happen. Um, thanks to councillors Rohan Laparte and Stephen Main from the City of Melbourne for your support also. Today we are welcoming on stage one of Australia's most eminent cultural exports, along with one of our most eminent cultural commentators. Barry Kosky is a friend and colleague to many of us here, though for much of the past decade and more, he's been a visitor to us rather than a resident. Barry left us early in the last decade when he was appointed Artistic Director at the Schauspielhaus Vienna from 2001 to 2005. Uh, he saw out much of the remainder of that decade directing across Europe and he began this decade with his notable appointment as head of the Komische Oper in Berlin. In that role, he has already made his mark spectacularly with a raft of astonishing and acclaimed productions and under his stewardship, the Komisch was last year named International Opera House of the Year by 50 of the world's most eminent opera journalists at the International Opera Awards. And he will soon add uh, Royal Opera House Covent Garden, Glyndebourne, Teatro Real Madrid, Oper Frankfurt and the LA Opera to houses around the world which have applauded Barikowski productions. Alison Crogan is one of our most distinguished theatre commentators and writers. She's an acclaimed editor, journalist, critic, poet, novelist and librettist with no fewer than three of her operas, Mayakovsky, The Riders and Flood, all premiering this year alone. As a theatre and cultural commentator, she's written for The Australian, for her own influential blog, Theatre Notes, and she's currently a performance critic for both The ABC and The Guardian. And now for Kosky in Conversation, please give a warm welcome to Barry Kosky and Alison Crogan. Well, hello, and thank you very much. Um, welcome to Melbourne, Barry. Thank you, Alison. <laughs> <laughs> How do we begin? <laughs> How to begin? It's very good to see you here. And um, the last thing I saw of yours was Papaya, which was back in 2009 at the 
the Sydney Opera House. And even that, I think, is that the last thing we've done here? Yes. Yes, so it's been quite a while. So I thought we'd begin with a bit of catch up um, and ask you about what you've been doing for Quick the last few years. Which, uh, which we'll do the medium yeah. version. We'll go the middle way. No, it's a bit weird because I, I, I haven't directed in Melbourne for a long time. Not a I long mean, the time. The last one was yeah. Telltale Heart, which was from Vienna. Yeah. But in terms of actually doing work here in Melbourne, um, I think it was like uh, in 1998 was the last seven. I think was Golly. my last Gilgul show. I think is that the, the last Operator time Jew you was the last wow. show. Wow. Okay. I think I did in Melbourne. So. Um, a lot's happened since. <laughs> um, but the quick version before we get to Berlin is that, yes, I left um, Sydney in 2000. I went to Vienna where I, where I ran the Schauspielhaus, which is a very small little theatre in Vienna um, for five years, which was, for the first two years, fantastic. Um, being in Vienna, the Schauspielhaus was a cinema, um, a very early cinema in Vienna and Freud's cinema, because oh, Freud really? lived and worked yeah. around the corner in Berggasse. So I was working in a space that Freud used to watch films in. And um, I had a dream one night. Um, <laughs> no, I did. No, it's true. Because I, I told my shrink years later in Berlin, I had this dream, and it happened three times. I was doing a show, and Frank Sinatra and Samuel Beckett were watching the show. And what did it all and mean? No, no, it was fantastic. Yeah. And then, and then, then you know, it was talking about why Sam Beckett and Frank Sinatra. I said they were the only people in the audience and Frank was whispering to Samuel during the show. <laughs> was it anyway, I, I, no, I'm not going to tell you anymore. Oh, okay, um, please. But, um, and then I was there for five years, and that was fan for the first year. Then I had, I was, I was, I had a co-director, and of course, as often happens in theatre with co-directors, it's a catastrophe. <laughs> and because okay. um, two people can't run a house, right? So um, it started to sort of rip apart, but. I mean, what was great, before that I actually had got Melita Juricic um, over to do a number of shows yeah. and, and Paul Kapsis, of course, did his Boulevard Delirium for me in Vienna and that was great. And then at the same time I was working in Vienna, I started to get offers to do operas in Germany and um, was always very happy to leave Vienna right. because <laughs> after a weekend there, you start to realise the city is very, very complicated and claustrophobic and dark and unresolved and... The tourism facade soon uh, yeah. wears down, and you are left with something which is, uh, I think, quite. I have never, ever in a city, in the, no city in the world at any time in my life, have been scared at night as I was in Vienna. Really? In what, in, what, in what sense? Because the ghosts are unresolved. There's been no cultural that, exorcism. That, that sort of There's been no historical exorcism. Thing, yeah. you, just, you just get the feeling that the city is, is just not kosher. Right. And. and, <laughs> and you know, those Aust I mean, the Austrians, I mean, it's brilliant. The, the, the reworking of the narrative, you know, mm -hmm. the only country that welcomed Hitler in, you know, he, the only country not to be invaded. Yeah. I mean, the Anschluss wasn't an invasion, yeah, it was yeah. a party. A million Viennese out on the streets mm. when he arrived. Um, and secondly, I mean, they voted Kurt Volpein yes, as the president right. after his Nazi past was... Uh, anyway, sorry about any Austrians in the audience, I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I hate your country. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, so I was working in the uh, coffee's good, though. Um, Melbourne Standard Coffee. Oh well. Um, uh, then I was getting offers to go to Germany um, to do opera, uh, and um, I'd always loved Berlin. I mean, I went there with my father 
um, when I was like 15 right. for the first time and, and when it was just West Berlin and there was something about the city that I just liked. And I'd always liked it when I was at reading about school. I'd always liked the Weimar Republic. I'd always liked yeah. the idea of it. And, and, and uh, I started going to Berlin regularly and thinking, oh, this is such a fantastic city. And I started to work uh, a lot of opera houses in, in Germany and in Europe. And then I moved to Berlin. Yeah. I left Vienna. I moved to Berlin and I started working at the Komische Oper doing a number of productions. And in 2008, I was asked to take over um, from the Intendant. Um, and I should say, I've got two jobs. My official German title, because the Germans love a title, is <laughs> Intendant und Chefregisseur, which means that I, the Intendant is a position that only exists in the German-speaking world. It's not general manager and it's not artistic director. What does it it's mean? It's just boss. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, 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 and there are Intendants that are conductors. They used to be all conductors. Right. It used to be, you know, um, Furt Wangler or um, Bruno Walter were Intendants of the Staatsoper in Vienna or the Berlin Staatsoper. So it used to be for conductors. And then in, this, in the 50s and 60s and, and 70s, it then became directors and... Um, and uh, they're also manager intendants, but it's right. a, and and then I'm sh and, and I'm chef regisseur, which is like the, the the chief director there. So I'm directing and running the company. Um, and I was asked to do that in 2008, and then had a few years preparation, Two and years. then since 2012, I've been running the company. So this is the end of the second. I'm actually in my semi-exhausted end of second season right. state. So t tell us a bit about the Comish offer. Like, look, it's a it's well. A first place. thing I think it's important to say it doesn't mean funny opera. Um, and I, I just, I just, I suppose I just had to be a little bit sort of Professor Kosky for a moment, just to, to maybe to tell people a little about the history of the house, because I think it needs a context. The, I'll get to the word Komische in a moment, because it happens to do with the second half of the history. So I'm in a theatre that was built in 1892, and it was built um, by two Viennese architects, and it was um, run by a very, very famous German-Jewish producer who put on review shows. Right. So it was showgirls. Yeah, yeah. And as we all know, I love a showgirl. <laughs> you do. Um, and um, so it was showgirl, showgirl, review, review. And these reviews were not just, you know, it wasn't a casino show. Mm. This was a three-hour spectacular, oh, okay. exactly like the Busby Berkeley, but yeah, even yeah. bigger. I mean, they were right. huge. And the theatre was built. It's beautiful um, horseshoe theatre, 1,200 seats. But the second balcony was all tables and chairs and a restaurant. Wow. So you could get your seat, you could pay for your seats downstairs or you could do dinner and a show Upstairs, but it's not like that now. No, no. If only shame. I say yeah. something. So, so this was this was this, and then in then what happened is a review theatre. Then in the about the, the just after the First World War, it established itself as an operetta theatre and became the leading German operetta house. Yeah. So every single famous uh, Franz, uh, Franz Lehár conducted and wrote uh, at the theatre. Um, Kalman, I don't know if his names mean anything to anyone. Oscar Strauss. Um, Paul Abraham, we'll get to him in a moment. All these very famous uh, operetta composers and singers. Richard Tauber, I think probably some of the opera people, Richard Tauber, one of the great operetta singers of the 20th century, um, performed there. So it has a huge, the 20s and 30s were amazing for operetta. Right. Yeah. Um, then came the war, uh, the war. The house turned into Nazi reviews, so it was Nazi showgirls. Um, <laughs> which would have been interesting to see. Yeah. I've, we've got some <laughs> So, uh, Nazi showgirls um, during the war. Then, uh, in 1945, uh, a very large Allied bomb um, went through the ceiling of the house, destroying the... Well, it was already the outside was destroyed in, 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 in bombs before the facade was destroyed. But the theatre had remained intact, and a bomb went through 
the ceiling and did not explode. So wow. it, it went through the chandelier okay. and went and just sat in the audience. So they had to defuse it after the war. But it meant the theatre wasn't destroyed, which is one of the only four or five theatres right. in Berlin not to have been destroyed because it was Jewish. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so it was one of the only, like so with the Berlin Ensemble and the Volksbühner, and there were a number of very important theatres that were not destroyed because most of the theatres were destroyed. Eighty yeah. percent of the city was 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 bombed. So it was an amazing sort of it was a miracle. And then in 1947, a man called Walter Felsenstein, who is was an Austrian, um, took over the house and said, I want to make this into an opera house. And I'm going to call it, not the opera house, I'm going to call it the Komisch Oper, which comes from opera comique, um, the French word. And opera comique is also not funny opera uh, in French. It, it is a form, as maybe a lot of people know, of 19th century music theatre that originated in France, which is uh, when you get arias and duets and choruses and then spoken dialogue. So it's not through composed. Mm. Bizet's Carmen. Yeah. was an opera comic. Uh, Tales of Hoffman yeah. was an opera comic. Very, very important French style, which the Germans took over the late 19th century. And he basically took the form, not because they were going to do uh, opera comic, but he wanted to make a difference between his house and the other oh, opera okay. houses. Yeah. And he set up the first opera company in the world as an ensemble using Stanislavski technique in opera. Wow. So that was 1947. Okay. So he'd been Stanislavski trained, and he was the very first, he basically invented opera directing. Right. In terms of Max Reinhardt had done yeah, lots yeah, of operas yeah. beforehand. But he said, nope, nine-month rehearsal periods. I don't know what they did for nine months. <laughs> I, have no, I, mean, I would not want to be stuck in a room with opera singers for nine months. I mean, I, mean, I love them. I love them. But, so nine-month rehearsal period. And he said, everything's in German. It was a, I mean, it's a big revelation. Everything's yeah. in German. It's a folk, it's a folk theatre. It's like a folk opera. Um, ticket prices were very um, cheap, and they rehearsed, and he created music theatre. He said, it right. has to be music theatre. It cannot just be music. The theatre site is half the story. Yep. So, so this became a worldwide phenomenon, and the Komische Oper then, in the 60s and 70s, re he, re he led the house to 74. I mean, right. that was, uh, I mean I hope they're not going to be there that long. And, um, and it became this extraordinary laboratory, and it basically invented post-war uh, European opera. Okay. Really extraordinary. So it's this amazing it's tradition. Amazing you're, tradition. You're and it's, it's like it, yep. it's like I mean to be asked to run that is yeah. like you know you have to sort of pinch yourself all the time. Then then in the seventies it was taken over by another very famous man called Harry uh, no Joachim Herz who was an East German and then Harry Kupfer and then Gertz Friedrich and these were all East German communist uh, Marxist theatre directors who went into opera, who revolutionised opera mm -hmm. um, by bringing an entire Marxist interpretation to the idea of opera production. So then that happened, then the wall came down and it was catastrophic yeah. because the entire East German tradition um, vanished. Yep. And they had uh, then a decade of like, what, who are, like most of Germany, who are we, what mm. are we, what do we do, what's it all about, um, uh, how do we fit in? Suddenly Germany had like too many opera houses, too many theatre companies. Um, and it went through a very bad period in the 90s. And then in 2001, it was taken over by my predecessor, who's a very good friend of mine, who now runs the opera in Zurich, yeah. Andreas Homelke. And he said, right, enough is enough. The East is finished. It's all over. We have to become international. And he brought in lots of very, very high-profile international opera directors, discovered me. Um, and 
most of the German audience hated it. The East right. German audience hated okay. it. And there was a big problem and very controversial productions. I mean, opera productions that were on in the first 10 decades before, uh, the first decade before of, the, of the 21st century were outrageous. I mean, people, people don't understand. They make my productions look like uh, <laughs> G-rated <laughs> Pixar opera. You know. Really? Uh, yeah. We're talking mm -hmm. piercing on, we're talking nipple mutilation in the Flix the Vieta product. I mean, fake, but I mean, we're yeah. talking extreme. very, we're talking extreme. Yeah. And, and, and but not, 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 not just for provocation. I mean, this, yeah. this is, this was, so it became seen as being this new rebirth. And without that rebirth, I wouldn't have my success because yeah, it, yeah. it really started the whole thing. And then he left and then the mayor of Berlin, he recommended me to the mayor of Berlin and then the mayor of Berlin asked me to do the, sh the opera. So that's how I am. And uh, there you are. And you're, you've got a staff of 450. Four, I'm in charge of 450 that's, people, which that's is That's a scary. lot of people. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> what you've got to understand is that, is that Berlin has three opera houses now, which is unparalleled in the world. It's like opera paradise. <laughs> so you've got the Berlin Staatsoper, which is run by Daniel Barenboim, and um, who is an electrifying personality. I mean, I really, really get starstruck, but I, 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 when you talk, I mean, there's so much cigar smoke anyway blowing at you, but when you, when you talk to him, you go, ah, it's just, it's, it's, he's, a, he's not just a legend, he's a, um, he's a freak. Right. Uh, and a genius, a genius, the man. Um, and, and, and loves Australia. I don't know, he, he? He, he came here to do a concert tour when he was 15 and fell in love for the first time when he was 17 on his second concert tour. Oh. Um, and well, loves Queensland. Really? That seems very unlikely. <laughs> I said, what does love do? Love, love makes it you blind, Daniel. Transfigures. Um, anyway, he, I mean, that, I, I, I'm going. Uh, anyway, he's, he's, extra, he's fabulous. He's amazing. Um, and he runs one. And then the Deutsche Oper, which is this huge flagship of West. And the Berlin Staatsoper was in the East. And I'm saying this because I think what he's got to understand, the East-West thing is still alive. It's like, right. you know, this whole East-West, East German, West German, East Berlin, West Berlin, it's all there still. It's very complicated. And so there's three opera houses. I am the smallest with 450 people. Good God. And the smallest with a 40 million Australian dollar budget. So you can imagine what Just the other two. Just for you. Yeah, but that's with yeah. a baby house. Wow. So I'm responsible. And in the house, it's a full-time staff. We have an orchestra of 105. We have a chorus of 60. We have an ensemble of 30 singers, plus about 100, 150, 100 guests during the year. Uh, and we present eight premieres a year and 25 operas in repertoire. So the pieces Gosh. stay in repertoire. Okay. So it's an incredibly different system. Yeah. And uh, that's a big change, of course, from the past. But it's, it's, it's a sort of cultural structure that you sort of dream about in suburban Melbourne, you know. And <laughs> you sort of think... And, and a dazzling example of why government funding works. Yeah. So 87% of my budget is Berlin state supported. 87%. Which means, of course, that the ticket prices can be affordable can because be that's low. what funding yeah. does. So it allows it to stop being accused of being elitist because kids can get in for eight euros in yeah. my opera house. And, of course, the t the t the t the t the, you, know, you can whack up the A price reserve, but you can keep the, the C and D price... Um, really low, yeah. and and it enables you to be risk taking, so that even though the box office is important, not everything has to work at the box office. In fact, we divide up the season into what needs to work, what hopefully work, and basically who gives a fuck. Let's do it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's this who gives a fuck. Let's do it anyway. Is what the government 
investment, not yeah. sponsorship, because yeah. that's the wrong word. Subsidy should be eradicated. It mm. should be called investment, because that's what it is. Well, it's, uh, I mean, Berlin raised arts funding instead of I lowering know, and, it. I know, they do. They're, they're last, the only yeah, the budget, the last yeah. year's budget, the national budget, 4.1 increase yeah. in, in the federal budget. But, but the scary thing for Melbourne and Australia, and I always think, I think, my God, the annual arts budget, the annual arts budget from the city of Berlin, that's just 3.5 million people, is half a billion Australian dollars. It's For 3.5 million people. That's our cultural budget, by the way. Half a billion. Australia's entire budget. So you go, I mean, budget. it's, of yeah. course, I don't want to bring the comparison, but it's just, it's interesting, of course, to go, uh. So, of course, it creates an indifferent discussion. <laughs> but we will anyway. Um, but listen, you know, uh, it's the uh, German funding, we'll get into funding later, I don't want to start. Wait, we'll do but but German funding is... Uh, still less than 3% of GDP, and it's the biggest funding in the world. Yep. So imagine what everyone else is. Well, if Germany is only 0.1, yeah. and I think Britain's about the same. Anyway, back to me. Yeah. Let's not back, talk about back it. Back to him. Um, <laughs> so, no, no, well, it, it enables you to really, um, it's the biggest, most fabulous playpen anyone could want. So, and I mean, but having those responsibilities, I mean, lots of paperwork, Barry, surely. No. Oh. You, no, you, no, no, you no, delegate. Well, no, no, because no. no, I don't delegate. I just, I have. I mean, you can't, you can't run any arts institution by yourself. I mean, this no. is also the mistake people make. You can have someone who is the figurehead, or someone who people think he runs or she runs the company. But you simply need a team. Yes. I mean, arts is a collaborative thing. It's a, performing arts is yeah. a collaborative art form, which means that not just on the stage, but off the stage, unless you've got a team of people. And I have, I mean, a sensational team. You've got a good team. I am yeah. the control freak beyond control freak. <laughs> but what I've tried to undergo in the last 15 years through a process of experience and a lot of money on psychiatry is <laughs> to give up this control to people that I trust. And that means being able to go away for a week and know that the house will operate. Being able to give people projects and say, you know, you do that. And I think that I wouldn't have accepted the job if I didn't want to be involved in the overall picture. Because it would yeah. be silly to take a job like that and go, well, you know, I just want to direct. No. And, and you know, those people can run the house. No, it, it, you ha I mean, I love doing the, the season planning. I love doing the graphic, looking at the graphics. I love, I love talking about the problems. I have, my biggest problem is the, exhaust, ex the exhaustion of having to be mother and father to yeah. 400 people. Because that's what you are. I mean, I mean it's, it's an ersatz family and you have to play mum and dad. Well, both. <laughs> you, you'd be a beautiful parent, Barry. But <laughs> how conscious are you as um, of of the cultural responsibility within within the wider culture of Berlin when you're making the decision? Are, are you are you just sort of deciding to do what you want to do, or is there a sense of? Well, this is the great joy. So yeah. there, there is no board. Yeah. In fact, they don't understand the word. It doesn't exist in German. <laughs> <laughs> Committee, Vorstand exists, but board doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Um, in terms of the arts. Right. So this means there is no board, there is no chairman of the board, there is the Minister of Culture, mm -hmm. who is, in my case, the Mayor of Berlin. Right. By, because he wants to so be... So you're answerable to him. So you, he rings you up and goes, what's happening? Why are you da 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 And you go, oh, and you go, I need a bit more money to do that. And he says, oh, well, think about it. I mean, it's, it's sort of on one level, you could say, <laughs> it's a little bit, you know. Uh, but actually, I'd much prefer that. I'd much prefer yeah. to be responsible to one person than to be responsible to 15 people on a board. And yeah. I'd much prefer to actually deal with the complexities of political um, ins and outs than to have to sort of report to a group of people, even though boards can be very helpful. And mm -hmm. I've, I've had great boards in Australia, fantastic boards, mm -hmm. who've not been nothing but supportive. But it is fabulous to just go, oh, God, 
you know, Klaus, you know, <laughs> and 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 this 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 helps. But so then, so your artistic, you, no one questions your artistic program right. when you're planning it, and no one questions it when it's presented. They will question it when it's on, right? Uh, the media or politicians or whatever, and that will be a discussion. But you don't have to do. I've never had to write a report. I've never had okay. to write any documents about what the company should be, the philosophy of the company. Nothing. Not one word. Wow. Um, and the bud and the the um, the uh, the contract is that I have complete artistic control of the Opera House and responsible for that. So, and no one interferes. Right. And, um, and of course, if you're bomb, then of course, that, it's you know, all your it's fault. A, it's all yeah, my fault. Yeah. But I, I, I think that's a good responsibility yeah. to, to take. I mean, I write, I write, have a contract, I, I sign the contract, I get a lot of German uh, money to do it, and that's part of the, the deal. I don't mm. have a problem with that. But it, it does create, so there's that, there's that responsibility, and then there's responsibility for Berlin, because it's, you know, it's a big thing to be running an opera house in Berlin, and there's Germany, and then there's sort of Europe. So, but in a way, once, once you've got over that, oh my God, which was the first reaction, you just get down, and basically, I mean, you're just putting on shows, mm. you know. It, it really, yeah. it's, it's Barnum and Bailey, Bailey yeah. just in German, yep. you know. <laughs> So you going to show us any of these shows? Oh, so right. <laughs> ah, segwaying into the video. Um, so we've got a bit of colour and movement. We have. We've got pictures. Because we thought you might like to see some colour and movement. That's Alison and me, not the royal we. Um, <laughs> and I thought the first thing, I'm going to show you some clips of ten productions that have been on in my first two seasons. And just a few things to say about it. Uh, the Comish Opera has always had a tradition of um, a varied programme, you know, Serious opera, uh, operetta, folks opera, and musicals. In fact, during the 70s, um, the most successful production of Felsenstein, the man who invented it, just before he died, was Fiddler on the Roof right. in East Germany. And they changed it all because they're the only place in the world that Broadway couldn't get to behind the wall. Right. So they completely reworked the show. <laughs> and, it was, and it was a huge hit. They did 500 performances of it um, yeah. over 20 years in repertoire right. with the same Tevya. Wow. <laughs> Different worlds. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, so where was I? Uh, so, anyway, so, so, it's, so part of the whole thing is to present a, a, a very, and the idea is 400 years of music theatre. So we do Baroque opera, we do 18th and 19th century opera, we do uh, world premieres, we do operetta, we just did, we opened West Side Story, I see a little bit from my West Side Story production because we also got the rights to D. Jerome Robbins. <laughs> The whole thing, which right. has been great. So what you'll see is, is Barakowski's Berlin version of West Side Story. Um, but um, so you see, a, so what you'll see is is just some of that's ten productions of the forty or so we've done in the last two years, and and to see the variety. They're not all my shows. We've had some names that people may know here. Benedict Andrews just opened a fantastic production of Fiery Angel from Prokofiev, which you'll see a little bit of, which had a huge success in January. Um, Evil Van Hover, who mm -hmm. I think Melbourne audiences we know, did, yeah. um, uh, yes. did a Mazeppa, the hits his, and Calixto Bieto, who's probably a name that not many people know, is a mad Catalan director, um, did the last production, Soldat. And so there's a few productions here which are not mine, but quite a few that are. And you'll see the ensemble in all their glory doing all that stuff. Should we have a look? Yeah, let's have a look. Apparently I can show
The last premiere we had a month ago, which was this production, which we did for the All towing through Australia next year. <laughs> Excellent. I just. But are, I, are any actually going to come here? We're trying. Um, I wouldn't say we're, it's like difficult. The magic flute. It's perhaps. difficult. It's difficult. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think I just before flute. we go, I just wanted to. You've got to understand that that's performed by merch to the same people, so that you see one on a Monday night, you see the next one on Tuesday. It's a repertoire yes. house, which means the same orchestra is playing all of that music, right. the same chorus is singing that. And this incredible flexibility is something that I've pushed as an identity factor for the pop commercial author right. because um, we don't have stars and we shouldn't have stars because we, we do something different. So what yeah. do we do that's not Anna Notrenko and Placido Domingo because they're down the road? <laughs> and what we do is that. 
Right. And that comes from a tradition which Walter Felsenstein started in 1947, which is to say that it's all performer-led. That right. no matter about what your uh, what piece it is, what genre it is, whether it's a musical operetta or an opera, that the centre of the process is the performer's body and voice, music, theatre. So it's, it's, I, feel, I feel it's very authentic to be doing what we're doing because I think it's authentic and true to the spirit of the founder. Yeah, and that's pretty much your shtick anyway. Isn't yeah, so now I can go back and nice yeah. to meet you and see you and I'll go back to Berlin. No. Um, <laughs> No, no, it's it's something I yeah I just body. I think it's like you know there's this I mean it's hard to try and persuade people that the idea that we were talking in the green room that that oh I was talking with Brett in the green room we were both talking in the green that you know we most most good directors love performing yeah in fact you can't be a good director if you don't love actors and singers you can't you can be a genius film director and hate actors yes yeah as Fellini did. I mean, Fellini yeah. just got them to go blah, 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 and fill the dialogue in later. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and, and you can be a film director and not have any respect for the notion of performance. performance but that's yeah. fine, that's film. Yeah. But it's like you've got to love being in a room with these people. And I don't mean every single one of these people, but be in love with the idea of perving at them for three hours. And, and watching and being the snake charmer. Yeah. You know, and if you don't want to be the snake charmer and, and, and charm it out of them, then I don't think that's fulfilling the role. And I think that there's a misconception, particularly in this country, <laughs> that the, are we segueing? Uh, are we segueing? Is that oh, okay. the director is some Svengali like cult figure mm. that gives a tray of spiced cordial to everyone and goes, drink it. <laughs> And everyone drinks it and goes, oh, you're a genius. Oh, I'll do anything you want me to do. Move left, move right. I'll put my legs up in the air. I'll do anything you want. And this is simply not true. No one can have a long-term career like that no. unless people want to work with that individual. And there is a sort of misconception, the abuse of the word auteur. Yep. Most of the arts media in Australia don't even know what it means. No one in Europe uses the word anymore anyway. And the second thing is this idea of director's theatre. You know, any good theatre is good or bad, and there's no such thing as director's theatre because any good director knows that he's only as good as the people he works with. Yeah. So the idea of it is just nonsense. And, and very old-fashioned in, in, in the idea of this dichotomy, which we won't get into because no. we promise we won't go there. But, it's, <laughs> but it is joyful to work in an environment. That's what I don't miss. Yes. It is joyful to work in an environment in Europe where I don't have to worry about all that crap. Yeah and you are just respected for putting on a show or not putting on a good show. And you're not analysed, are you doing the right thing or not doing the right thing? The right you're kind of thing. Or yeah. the kind of thing. You yeah. analyse well, what's, what's happening there. And, and, and I do have, if I, I mean, I love showbiz. I love watching big shows, small shows. I love sitting in the theatre. I love the, watching the audience react to it. But when I think about what I actually love and why I do it, is actually those hours in the rehearsal room with those people, whether yeah. they're opera singers or actors. You'd have to love it. Yeah, otherwise, why do I want to spend a whole so years and yeah. hours and hours just? I mean, kind of, I can if I want to do that, then I can be a stand-up comic if I want that sort of narcissism. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I but I but if you want to sit there and do all that work and work with these people, you just have to be turned. on. And I don't want to do it. I've never liked acting, yeah. even Norman Grammer when I was up on that those quad plays, <laughs> doing electrifying performances of Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> As one does. Um, I, yeah. I, I didn't like it. I, no. just, I, did, I always felt there's something wrong. And I, and, I, and I like sitting out and being able to 
shape and mold and craft and comment and, and, and draw. But it's like, it's the idea that one person does. It's like, you know, the idea that a conductor is only as good as the musicians in front of him or her, you yeah. know? You know, the Vienna Philharmonic can play like dogs. I've heard them play like dogs. Shit, you know? After the the Woolloomooloo Philharmonic would be better on some <laughs> But But, you know, if you get a good a conductor up there, then there's that incredible thing that happens. Yeah. And, and so it's this idea of this, this one-man band is, 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 is... And I've never encouraged it, but, of course, it's easy for people to assume that that's, that's yeah. what the truth is. And, and you are the kind of cohesive force in the middle of the whole huge production. I mean, we were watching some very big productions there. There's obviously hundreds of people involved in it. Yeah. And there has to be a point of focus that... No, you have to. I mean, I, I don't think... That. You so can't do that sort of thing. I mean, you can't do that sort of thing with just the collective. I'm not no. all in favour of, like, anyone do what they want either. No. Because the role of the director is there to nurture, encourage and shape. And, of course, it is a vision. Of course, it's one thing. But that's what that, that's what that type of theatre is. Yes. And... Yeah. And in the old days, old days, you know, that was Shakespeare moving everyone around or Moliere saying, I wanted this, but they were also actors, so it was very yes, different. Yes, But I think the modern director um, suffers from this idea now that, as I said, that you just hand a tray of, of spiked cordial and everyone drinks it. It's, it's simply not <laughs> yeah. the truth. And, and the debate that I've read about... Sorry, Alison, I'm going to keep I'll on talking. No. Is it's your job. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, in this current debate, which we promised we wouldn't talk to, but I can't resist, um, about... <laughs> about playwrights versus directors versus adaptation or whatever is just is simply nonsense because in the well we won't talk about that till later because we said we were but <laughs> but one of the things I have to say is from the director's point of view which is the only position I can talk to because um, I'm a playwright is that you know there seems to have been what I've read in the last few years you know Benedict and Simon Benedict Andrews and Simon have got a lot of you know, whipping yeah. and whatever about, you know, adaptations and director's theatre and whatever. Ironically, of course, they're working in major European houses. Benedict's about to open um, uh, Streetcar Named Desire uh, in yeah. London next week with Gillian Anderson. Yeah. And Simon's moving to, to Basel and Munich. So it's, 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 they've got a lot of things, but, you know, what's, who's never asked in this whole discussion? I've never, anything when, when actors are asked. And I'll give you a list of actors that I've worked with, that Simon works with and Benedict have worked with and some of the biggest names in Australia who love working Yes, with I directors. Know. Yeah. So in this discussion, the actor is always left out. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. And of course you could say, I had a very bad experience with Barry, or I had a bad experience with the director. Of course you can have that. But yet again, this dichotomy that there somehow exists this thing called the director and the thing called the writer in theatre, where the discussion is actually about the actor or the singer, yeah. is quite interesting. It is, and it does raise a whole kind of thing about what theatre is. Yeah, but back to um, Berlin. Yes, back to Berlin. Well, actually, I was going to ask oh. you... <laughs> Something that you said about um, theatre being like a debacle of the intellect, which interested me. A what? A debacle of the intellect. Yeah. A dibble No, a debacle of the intellect. A debacle of the yes. intellect. Oh, my, it was a dibble. Yes. As in what? As in like... No, it's something you said. Did I? Did yes. Oh. Is that translation? Um, I can't remember. I read it somewhere. Like debacle, like a cacophony or whatever. I, like like, a, like a, a, it must be... A, a debacle of the intellect. I'm quoting Baudelaire there, but you did say something oh, very okay. like that. Right. And um, <laughs> ask me another question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, given that you're the reverse, <laughs> given you're the reverse of the of, of an anti-intellectual Barry. Um, but but. Um, what, so do you, what do you mean? Do you mean that, that like it has to it has to appeal? straight to the public, or what, what, what do you mean? What are we well, I, I don't know. I was gonna, that's why I was asking yeah, you. I think, I, think, I think you've got I mean, to, I you mean, know, I think any... If, if, the, if the audience 
are not the reciprocal, the recipient of what you're doing, then it can't be theatre. Um, it can be something else. Yep. But, you know, the ritual is a group of people doing something in front of another group of people. And if this ritual is not based instantly on emotion, yep. then it's not theatre. And it can be an intellectual process simultaneously with an emotion or even later, but the sensory experience has to be the first port of call. That means what yep. I see, what I feel, what I hear, what it does to my heart and my emotions. And if that's not the trigger, that has to be the trigger for everything else. Yes. The Greeks got it right. Yes. Which did. is why yeah. they put music and masks and dancing and huge choral things in, because they knew, Aeschylus and Sophocles knew, that that was the way in to the experience. I mean, you yeah. just have to always go back to the Greeks, because they're virtually always right. <laughs> um, they very often are. And Well, very often, not always, but very often. They slavery. Yeah, yeah they have slavery. But, but, but in <laughs> terms of that... Um, but, all, but I think that for me, it's, it's you know, I do... The Germans sometimes don't get me, because they yeah. go, we don't, like, you, you love... You put on big shows, not all the time, but yeah. even my, my serious operas are big theatrical experiences. But you're not scared of that, and yet you're not, you know, just putting on, you know... Uh, a review, you know, you're, mm. you're, you're smart and there's ideas there. And, and I'm glad they don't get it. I'm glad that it... Why, why, why is that? that because, because uh, you know... Why don't they get it? Because it's very... No, it's, it's, un, it's historically un-German. Right. Because... This, you, this emotion... No, no, the, 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 because, because for, for German theatre in the 20th century, it's yeah. very intellectual. I mean, yeah. post-Adorno, it's yes. very, very intellectual. Post the entire Marxist tradition, the idea that dramaturg is a German invention. Yeah. Even in the 19th century, there's this buildings, Bildungstradition that's like, that's like it's to do with education, it's to do with... I mean, it's a good thing. Yes. That they, their, their culture and their theatre is linked up to their idea of identity and their soul. Mm -hmm. So what they're looking at, even in contemporary productions, is a reflection of not just today, but yeah. yesterday. Yeah. And that's very important in theatre because everything is about yesterday. Everything. Yeah. So um, this, is, this is very exciting. And, of course, they, they, but the, prob the downside of that is that it's very... It's in what they call Fach, in subjects. You know, they put that... And there's a word, Schubladen, which means shoebox. Shoe and oh, I, I've okay. always said, right. don't put me in a Schubladen, you know. You can't. I like different shoes. Unfair. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing that they don't understand is that... No, they don't understand such a thing. That's very, that very prevalent in the culture is the complete uh, uh, non-use of humour as a way of tackling very large, tragic issues, or a way of presenting that you can laugh and still be serious. And they, and they don't Well, they killed the Jews through. off, so they killed yeah. all their clowns off. I right. mean, so it's... <laughs> and I say that. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, I say, it's not a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, okay. I mean, the entire pre-war comic opera theatre scene was 70% Jews. Yeah. So if you, if you kill that off or send that into exile, you know, you've got post-war Germany and then the East Germany. So right. they've got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, and, and, and you're there too. And they'll never get it back because they, 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 they know they've killed a part of their soul off. So, so this is the interesting, complex dilemma, which right. can, I can segue into... Segue away, Barry. I'm not sure what you're segueing um, into. I, I, um, one of those clips there, which I want to show you a second clip of, is a piece called Balance of Boy. And I, 
I, I arrived in Berlin, I said, you know, we, what are the great pieces that were done in Berlin before the war, right. in the Weimar Republic? And everyone said, oh, you know, the Threepenny Opera. And I said, no, 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 there was this entire tradition of jazz operettas. And this means that what happened was that Vienna, well, Budapest was the start of, Fr France, Paris was the start of it, Offenbach, then it went to Budapest, then it went to Vienna. Johann Strauss, Franz Lehár, then all the Jews of Vienna went to Berlin. So in the, in the, after the First World War, up until 33 when Hitler arrived, Berlin was essentially New York in the 50s. The, the town was run by Jews, culturally. It was absolutely Bruno Walter, Klemperer, Max Reinhardt. I mean, it was a city entirely of middle-class Jewish audience, not entirely, 70% Jewish yeah. middle-class audiences and artists. And so they had these amazing, huge operettas in which what happened was that all the Viennese composers writing their boom chum chum waltzes went to New York and went, oh, my God, Gershwin, Cole Porter, oh, right. my God, jazz, oh, went to Paris and started to put jazz music into European operetta and opera. And, and all of them, 90% of these composers were Jews. So you had this amazing explosion in Berlin of large-scale, and we're talking 200, 300 people on stage, five-hour shows with jazz and huge orchestras, and in a way, the sort of American musical, a New York musical in Berlin. I mean, right. New York yeah. then came to Berlin and copied it, and it went back to New York. So there's this incredible right. cross-cultural divide. So I went there and said, oh, we don't know about that. And so I asked <laughs> these Germans, said, well, when was the last time any of these shows were done? Oh, I don't know. So we started investigating, right. and then I started to realise, oh my God, there's this treasure trove of stuff here. And I said, we have to do a piece for my first season that is one of these pieces, because they're just, they're fabulous. And so we found the, one of the best examples called Balin Savoy. And Balin Savoy is very interesting. Balin Savoy was the last great jazz operator premiered in Berlin before... Um, Hitler came to power. Okay. So, so yeah. this was the premiere was four months before the ban on Jewish art. Right. So, what you've got to imagine imagine if a show opened in Melbourne and was on this stage and was a huge hit, and the bookings were for months and months in advance, and everyone wanted to see it, and after two months, it shut down. Wow. And everyone on stage was either sent away or told they didn't have a job. And the five uh, lead roles, all Jews, were banned from performing in Germany. The librettist and the composer were sent into exile. So I said, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. And not, not through a guilt campaign, because I think the Germans now have over 70 years, it's, it's been this. Yeah. And you know enough already. You know, you either have to say, we're going to keep doing this, or with a new generation, you have to say, now you have to involve that narrative in your identity yeah. without ever forgetting it and taking responsibility, but also being able to cope with present. Yeah. So I said, I want to do it, and I, want, I don't want to say to them, look, dead Jews for three hours. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do this. I want to say, this is German culture. Yeah. You didn't kill the Jews, you killed a part of your culture, but now please celebrate it. So we put on this show, and it wasn't just a show, it involved on this huge, um, and uh, it was the first time that music had been heard in Berlin since the premiere in 1932. Wow. And the German audience went, I mean, it was, just, it was an extraordinary um, opening night. And, and the, the history of the composer was, I won't go into the details of Paul Abraham, who's the, the composer of it, but 
it was an amazing night because you felt that this audience um, was sort of unified in a sort of celebration of something without feeling shame. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want the Jewish composer to be remembered for the great music, not because he's a dead Jew now. Yeah. And at the end of it, we had this amazing thing where I did this, I, I said to the company, we've got to sing an encore uh, because I want to give a speech at the end of things. So they, we did this a cappella version of a very famous song by the composer. Now the composer's called Paul Abraham. He was a, a Hungarian Jew. He was at the height of his powers when he got exiled from Berlin. This was the last show he wrote officially right. in Germany. He got sent, went to Paris, went to Cuba, got syphilis, didn't know he had syphilis, went mad in New York, penniless, and, and he had the most famous jazz band in Berlin, the Paul Abraham Band, the most famous jazz band, and the best goulash parties in West Berlin. <laughs> and I said to the audience at the end, this composer who stood in this orchestra pit in the 1930s and conducted, because I should say the opera was, the piece was not performed at the commercial opera, but the, the orchestra of the commercial opera did the premiere. I said, right. this composer went mad in New York and was discovered in Madison Avenue in his pajamas with his white jazz band leader gloves on, thinking that the, the traffic was his orchestra in oh Berlin. And this image of this, this mad Hungarian Jew standing in his pajamas. So I told the audience that on opening night. And I said, however, the fact that we are standing here and performing this for the first time since 1932 means that his dibuk, his soul, which was killed before his time, can now be released. And we would like to sing one of the last songs he wrote in Berlin, which is called Good Night, it was an English title, um, for you. And so a hundred people on stage in a cappella. And I have never, ever heard such a silence. And in fact, at the end of it, there was such, there was like seconds of like stillness. Wow. And you did feel that there was some sort of <gasps> release. And then everyone cried and everyone had, said how fabulous. And in a way, <laughs> that's what you should be doing. Yeah. I mean, you should be doing that in 1947. That's different. And in 1950, yeah. you should be doing that. And in 1970, maybe it's different. But in 2014, no. in Berlin, mm. I don't want to be going like this to this audience. And I mm. want to be saying that, you know, accept it, remember it, don't forget it. Yeah. Um, but please, it's your culture. I'm just giving you back what was yours. And anyway, I want to show a clip from this show because... So it's a fabulous show. It's a fantastic Fado farce with music and jazz and whatever. But in the middle of the song, there's a show called Everyone Do the Kangaroo. <laughs> and, and this is a... She sings it. I'm gonna, I have to show the whole number because she's fabulous, but you, because you have to see... It's, it's a great number. And, and this is this great um, uh, performer, Catherine Merling. And when I first... I couldn't believe it when I first heard the show. But, I mean, this is not true. And the music is that, you know, there's, um, everyone's doing the tango nowadays, but the tango is so passé... All the world is now dancing to the kangaroo. I'm translating what you're going to hear. You know, it's a foxtrot mixed with the blues. And so I thought, well, at the end of my first season, what better than give back to Berlin? And the sad thing is, if this show had been not been shut down in 32, I'm sure this song would be a big hit, a yeah. worldwide hit. And in fact, at the end of the show, everyone was doing the kangaroo in the foyer. Um, so let's hear the kangaroo. <laughs> Sweetheart, seit langer Zeit ist schon der Boxtrot passé. Komm, 
Und glauben Sie, man tanzt rum, ba, keine Idee. Man sieht auch ziemlich wenig Tango mehr. Tango Schritt ist viel zu Jüngst hat die Mistern jetzt im Folieberger den neuen Song kreiert, der gar nicht schwer ist. Sie kommt mit einem Sprung, als ob sie eine junge
yeah, so I think that, you know, what better way to, to, to memorialise this dead Jewish artist than to bring him back like yes, that? Yes, absolutely. You know, so, you know and, I, and it's, it, it gives me a thrill. I mean, the show's in repertoire now. It's, it was a huge hit. And, and people are going, oh, my God, I didn't know this music exists. I didn't know this. I didn't know this. And it's, it's, it, 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 it nourishes me and it nourishes them. And it's, 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 it's pretty special. There's this thing about um, how much is theatre talking to the dead, something you've talked about, like digging up the dead, bringing back the dead. But there's this huge celebration in that about this. But... It, underneath it is something very serious. I mean, this horrific history, obviously. Yeah, but, but theatre is about the dead. It's yeah. about bringing back spirits. It's, it's, it has always been. It yep. is in every culture in the world about death. Yep. It is about reliving, replaying, recommunicating. Um, modern 20th century theatre tends to forget that a lot. Yep. Um, and in fact, all the, it's happened, it happens in Japan. It happens in China, it happens in indigenous culture, it happens in South America. It is universal that theatre is a connected, and I'm not the first one to say that. I mean, no. people have said it more spectacularly and articulately than me. Uh, in the 20th century, like Ato and Tadeusz Kanter and all these people, it's about communicating with the dead, and through text and through music, that's what you're doing. It's a form of spiritualism. Yes. It's, 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 it's a Ouija board. And, and if you don't get turned on by the Ouija board, then find another profession, because... This communicating with the spirit, and by spirit you're dealing with all sorts of spirits, is also a match with the idea of communicating with history. Because any theatre production anywhere in the world is not just itself. It's yeah. the result of the last version of that. It's the result of what the playwright or the director did before. There is a history behind everything. And this yeah. history in this theatre is then reflected in the history of the culture. So what you see on the stages is fairly a good indicator of various forms of how a community or culture looks at themselves, which is yes. why theatre is the best mirror to see anything that you want to see. And, and I find that very spectacular, because film can't do that, no. and television can't do that. You know? And that's, mm. that's what makes theatre unique. And as long as we eat and breathe, there'll be theatre. The death of theatre is such <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> uh, is, more, it? more people go Constantly. to the theatre in the whole world than anywhere else. You can say, I don't like that, and there was always a better time. Oh, the golden time, you know, when John Sumner... <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, theatre is also ephemeral, yes. like spirits and like the dead, and it's also lasting because it's in, it, it, it engraves into your brain. I mean, I don't know about you or the audience, but I remember these experiences oh, when I was young more than I remember film or television or books. You know, yeah. I remember going to see, as I talk about it, the, you know, the Australian Marinette Theatre's production of The Magic Pudding. I remember it. Yeah. And I remember that wonderful moment when the black curtain rose and I just thought... I don't know, I was six or seven, I just saw those puppets thinking they're real, and then the black curtain rose at the end for the curtain call, and you saw the puppets for the, for the puppeteers for the first time. I was like this, but I remember that. I remember those, those things. I remember the cherry blossom I wrote about in my book uh, with Madame Butterfly in the Princess Theatre when I was seven. I remember when I was, a, when I, was, I think I was taking my parents, when I was, must have been about 13 or 14, when I saw Lindsay Kemp come down that staircase in flowers in that sequin dress. It's like seared yeah. in, in the brain in a way that, I don't think any other art form can do it because you sort of it, it's also forgotten too, so it becomes smoky. But within that smoke is is enough fuel and juice for you to create. Um, well, there is, it is that thing of it, it be, being the past in the present now, and it's absolutely this moment that is mortal, and that's part of the the 
subtext of and death I suppose, of Earth, I suppose, when you're in Germany, you are confronted by that all the time because you are in a city which is an absolute cultural and historical work in progress. Yes. It's fabulous because it's, I hope it will never be finished and never be completely rebuilt because you are not only get the history of Prussian Germany from the 19th and early part of the 20th century, you get the destroyed Germany, you get the rebuilt Germany, you get the Jewish Germany, the Nazi Germany, the East Germany, the wall, the post-wall, and it's all just mixed together yeah. and no one's going, this is what Berlin should be. There's no urban planning, mm. you know. <laughs> It just is. You just let it happen, you know? And, of course, people say this should be built and that should be built, but there's no way that these ghosts and these spirits and these things can... They just, they just are what they are. And you are confronted in a way that I was never confronted in Australia. By the, the city itself? No, but I think everything is, every, the history is either put under the carpet or oh, it's, or it's, yeah, or it's yeah. renovated. Yes. It just goes through interior design. <laughs> and, and so you don't get that one-on-one -on -one connection with space and culture... And it's there. Yeah. It's got to it's be there. Absolutely it's there. there. It's, it's rich and it's extraordinary. But I love the fact that in Berlin it's an open wound. Yeah. And I think for culture to be successful, you have to have an open wound. And in Australia, unfortunately, there, there, there was sewing that went into the wound, then there was a Band-Aid that went into the wound, and now there's plastic surgery. <laughs> so <laughs> the wound has disappeared. Do you think so? Oh, well, uh, it's well, there. No, no, no the no. outside. Yeah. No, I'm talking about it's all, and we know what happens yeah. with, with plastic surgery. It means that you can actually then think that that's the reality. Yes. And so what actually happens is that if the wound is not open, and what do we mean by wound? We yes. mean the cultural discussion. We mean the history. We mean in Australia the indigenous history. cannot be on the parameters. It has to be the central yes. wound. And you have to open that wound up and let it be a wound. And then from that wound comes all sorts of other histories and whatever. But if the wound is not open and literally not festering, you yeah. get no great art. Yeah. You get no great art. You get club med. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean... Festa, well, Australia. Festa. Well, no, it's, it do, actually, Australia does a lot of festering. It does, it? it does festering very well. It's just nothing else happens. Right. Okay. Yep, no. um, I mean, all this makes me think, and I've often thought there's something mystic in your direction, Barry, like you're a secret mystic. Is that, would, would you take that on? <laughs> Um, as something that's I think, uh, how you think of yourself. I'm a little, I'm a little bit shamanistic. Yes. Not Jim shamanistic. But, no. But <laughs> oh, I love Jim. Jim is fabulous. This sort of I, transfiguration. I, I think it is. I think, yeah. I think you have to be. I think, I think anyone... I mean, it's connected to what we're talking about, the, the, the dead. I think that when, when I see a dancer dance, that's, that's mystic for me. That, mm. That's something that is, that is inexplicably beautiful and moving. When you hear someone play a piece of music, whether it's jazz or whether it's Bach or whether it's whatever, there is something, where does that sound come from? You know, and our job is to try and not just articulate the inarticulateness, what Martha Graham calls spectacularly the queer, divine unsatisfaction of creating. Um, and queer not in the... 20th century, or late 20th century, but yes. queer as in strange. Yep. Strange, divine, unsatisfaction. And she calls also, this is a great quote, the blessed unrest. Um, and and this, this, this thing, when someone, for example, sings, why I love mm. opera, why I don't do much theatre now, yep. is because I cannot believe that the human body, by the pressing of muscles in the diaphragm and a combination of air and muscle and bone, can produce that sound. Yeah. 
which is then conveyed through notes and through someone else's ear into being something that expresses my soul, because that's when you hear great music mm. being played at you, you go, oh my God, he's just put my soul to music, that's what music is, mm -hmm. then I just think, well, why would I want to work anywhere else? I mean, I'm paid to do that. So it's actually quite practical, you know. <laughs> give, me a, give me a check and I'm happy to sit there watching people flex their muscles and diaphragms and sing at me. I mean, it's, it's but there is, there is, I mean, I, I use the word snake charmer. I think rather than charmer, I would say snake charmer. Okay. Because I, I, I like, you You're know, I go, mm -hmm, the and the snake comes up and the whatever. But there is something... I watch it and I watch this, I watch, I'm, I'm always completely speechless about the magic of the performance space. I think I, at the beginning of every show, whether it's, well, you don't know what it is, I sit there in the audience, as audience, and I have always this millisecond of memory what it was like when I first went to the theatre. And I, as the lights descend, I always get this weird one thousandth of a second flashback to, you know, kachunk, you know, that thing. And I always think this is going to be the best experience of my life. Yeah. In most cases, it isn't, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. But to have to sit in the theatre and think my life could be changed in the next few hours is what I think is the best positive way to go into the theatre. And not to be disappointed if your life is not changed, but to go, well, next time, maybe. And if you're lucky to have <laughs> seven or eight experiences like this, then you're lucky, that yep. it's all been worthwhile. Yep. But that's what I try and do my theatre for. I try to do it for that person. In a way, what I'm doing my theatre for, and what I always think of is little Barry sitting there, age seven. What do I want him to feel when I'm putting on this show? That, that's, what, that's what turns me on. I don't really do it for money and, and ego. And I, think I, I do it because that sense of opening up something is something very special for theatre. And that's why thousands of people around the world still do no, what's essentially an art form, which is crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it is, essentially. Yeah. I sometimes, I mean, uh, the amount of work it takes and how, how complex it is, and sometimes I wonder why people do it at all. Love. It is. It must be. But, lo but love meaning that deeper thing that you, that's pulling out of your own soul and other people's yeah, soul. Yeah, and it, I think that's... It is, the th I mean, I know it's cliche, but it is that thing about the liveness of it that we're all in the same room breathing. And the diversity of it. Because yes. when we talk about the theatre, we're not talking about, like, one thing here. We're talking no. about a multiplicity of styles and yep. performances. And this is what and really... Cultures. I mean, it used to piss yep. me off here when I lived here, was that the theatre was talked about as if it was one form of articulated performative expression. Yep. And you go, uh, uh. you know, I love Tennessee Williams and Chekhov. Would I direct Ten Tennessee Williams and Chekhov? Probably not. But I love Tennessee Williams and Chekhov. And, and my work is nothing to do with Tennessee Williams or Chekhov. And I think if you view a piece of one, a one-person show or a piece with no text or a piece with text or with adaptation, who cares about the title? Who cares about what form it is? Who cares about having to say, this is what this piece is? No, no, no. Whatever happens to the audience at that particular moment, at that particular time, is what the piece is and it's legitimate. Yeah. And we don't need critics and we don't need arts administrators telling people what the form should be. The artists should decide what the form is and the audience should respond to that. And if it doesn't work, your audience will soon tell you. Yes, your absolutely. Your audience will soon tell you. Yeah. I mean, there's also, I mean, I, the one thing I miss about Australia is Australian audiences. I mean, I, they were very loyal to me. Um, and they were great, and I never had a problem with the audiences. I mean, well, the, the audiences that like my show. But, um, <laughs> but 
They weren't four people. I mean, no, I wouldn't have I had know. a career yeah, if there was like three people going, yay, Barry, great. <laughs> Such a great show. I really loved it. <laughs> Me and the two other people that, you know, sitting No, here. no, you always I mean, had an audience. You know, I mean, yeah. it, 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 it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And I wouldn't have got, you know, uh, uh, I wouldn't have developed as an artist in Australia if there wasn't this feedback from the audience. Yes. You know. And this, uh, this started with you. I mean, you, you were uh, very... Um, Precocious. Precocious is the word, but Long you know, hair. zoom straight to the top, as it were. You know, yeah, but that's the good thing about Australia. I mean, it yeah. really, I mean, it's a great, I mean, it doesn't happen in most other countries no, where you no. can, if you if you got the uh, you can go far. But it, just but, you but, go but, against the ceiling. Yes, that's right. And that, but you're, you're also working, we, sh we should talk about independent theatre and, and your experience of independent theatre quickly because we're beginning to run out of time, believe okay. it or not. I could talk for hours. Yeah, I know, but um, um, with Gilgal, you know. I you don't, yeah, I think it's like, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I do now if I hadn't had what I have. Yeah. And I am a great believer, like lots of theatre people around the rows, in growing up with shed shows, you know, and, yeah. and growing up outside the system. Uh, because it tends to separate the dilettantes from the people that really want to do something. Um, and I was, I mean, okay, you can say I was lucky because I had in my childhood, my parents supported me and went, took me to fantastic things and I went to Melbourne University at a time that was, the student theatre was at its absolute, you know, was a blossoming explosion of stuff there. And so that was very lucky. But with the work I did with Gilgal in the independent scene where we didn't have any money when we started, we just went, we're just putting on a show. I mean, I do believe in Judy and Mickey philosophy when you're starting off. I do. Yeah. I do believe in let's just put on a show because we have to. Yeah. And 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 if you have to put on another two shows before anyone takes any interest in you, then that that that'd be so. But I do believe that the best training I ever had was because I don't believe in directors going to theatre schools. I'm sorry if anyone has been there, but I just don't believe you can teach directing. I think you can teach acting skills. Yeah. But I just don't believe you can teach directing. Directing only comes from doing it. It only okay. comes from going. Uh, putting on a show, oh, that was a dust at the next one. Oh, I'm learning that. You learn by doing, and theatre is a verb, not a noun yeah, or an yeah. adjective. It's a verb. It's a doing thing. So it means you don't discuss it. You don't sit around analysing it. You do it. <laughs> you do it. You do it. It's a verb. To make theatre. To do theatre. And for me, it's very important that, you know, when I was starting out, I mean, you know, you have to burn. You have to, you have to burn for it. And if you don't burn for it, then you've got to think, why don't I burn for it? Then go into another artistic thing. But, you, have to, you know, the, the, and you have to think it's the most important thing in the world. And I think back, I mean, I don't want to sort of mythologise it, but I really, it, it did happen that I think back to when I was 20 to 25, I did think what I was going to do was going to change the entire cultural landscape and that what I was doing was the most important thing in the world. But if you don't have this selfishness when you're that age and you're starting off, then then get another job. Yep. Because you actually have to say, I don't give a fuck about the world and what's happening. I don't give a fuck. I'm just doing this and this is the most important. And if we get the show on, oh, yes, I will be able to express what I want to say. And, um, and for no money, too. Yep. It should have nothing to do with money. Of course, then that wears off. Yes. <laughs> you get sick of being poor. Yeah, yeah, you get sick of being poor and you want yeah. to be paid. You say, I'm yeah. pretty good, I want a job, <laughs> I want my money. And this is where... This is where you have to have the, what, I'm, what, what I think is in Australia, but so important, and what I had, and I, I'm, I'm sure it exists. I mean, this, this festival is an example of why it exists. But, you know, you have to have mentors. Yes. You have to have people that go... I mean, I had a series of extraordinary mentors. The first one was John Truscott, who went to yeah. Melbourne University and said, oh, my God, you have to come and direct an opera for me, like just seeing one show. 
Um, the next one was Carrillo Gantner, yep. who, who really just went, oh, Barry, come on down, do what you want, um, and supported me. Uh, the third one was, was Moffat, Oxenbold, at the Opera in Sydney, who was a great, great... Um, and, and, uh, and I had other people that were very helpful, but these three men, when I was starting out, just not just gave me the opportunities, but also protected me and gave mm. me encouragement and, and, and so... And I really believe... And it's something that I enjoy doing in Berlin now. I can't... Uh, you know, I'm, even though I'm 47, I do enjoy playing Grandpa. Uh, no, it's not mother, father, no, mother, father, mentor. But I just, it's, it, you know, when I speak to these young assistant directors of mine or when I see a show of a young director, it's, it's something that, you know, you have to be critical and you have to be judgmental and you have to be helpful. But there's something that's so important about this. And I think the problem with Australia, particularly with Melbourne, uh, and I, I can't comment on the shows because I have not seen a piece of Australian theatre for a good 15 years, but, but um, you know, we talked about this in the green room. What, what historically is a disaster in Melbourne was when that middle range of fabulous theatres, Anthill, The Church, yeah. Theatre Works, died. Yeah, well, so, they, they didn't die. They so you were have... Removed. Well, they just... Well, they were allowed to die. They were, they were defunded. Defunded. Well, yeah, yeah but they, they couldn't survive. There were yeah. professional people working at these yeah. theatres. And you look at what the amazing work that was done. And not yeah. every show was good. Who gives a fuck? Not no. every show opera I do is good. And, and, and whatever. But this... And so what you have is you have the large established companies and you have the independent scene, which is fatal. Mm. Because if you don't have that middle ground, and Melbourne had that. Yes. Melbourne had that. And yeah. through the arts funding cuts, it destroyed an extraordinary tradition which had developed out of La Mama and out of the Melbourne University and all of that stuff, <coughs> gone. Yeah. Never to come back in that form. This is not to say that being great people, I'm sure there are fantastic theatre people working in the, in the city at the moment, but, you know, you've got to be real, real about what happened, about the history yeah. of the theatre in this country. And if you just have... Uh, mainstream theatre there and independent, non-funded or uh, 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 independent free scene theatre here, and it's great, and the free scene, uh, the, the large uh, uh, institutions can help the, the, the not-so-large, that's not enough. No. It's not enough. Yeah. And, and we were talking in the green room. It's not enough to yeah. say, yes, but we'll just fund, I believe uh, the new Minister of Arts thinks it's very good just to fund the large, large Things. That's, you cannot have a tree without soil. Yeah. And the soil is the small company and the individual artists. So if you want a big tree, you can forget it if you cut everything else out. Yep. And I worry about Australia that it just doesn't understand the idea of how the soil, yeah. which I mean all these shows and all these artists, creates the tree. And the tree does not grow by itself. Oh, the garden metaphor. Yeah. Um, no, but it's a good But one. it's true. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's very, very sad. And whilst I think it's fabulous, I mean, I had a look online to see all these great, you know, very interesting shows and what, what Brett and Martine have done here with this festival is terrific and um, whatever. That's great. But that's a very vacuumed few weeks here. It's what happens in all the other weeks of the year. And this is where the disaster lies with the politicians. Yes. It disaster lies with the failure of politician after politician after politician to understand that with just a minimum amount of more money, just even 1.2% mm. of GDP, the arts can flourish and survive for future generations and that you have to prepare for 10 years, not next year. And that we don't need any more buildings. <laughs> There's enough. Please buildings. stop it with the buildings. Please stop <laughs> it with the buildings. No more theatres. No, just shut the arts centre down. But no more theatres. But like... <laughs> but, 
but but it's 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 it has to this is and it's also connected with education you know i mean i've said this before i mean the arts and education have to be combined you can't have a flourishing arts culture and have kids come out of school and not speak a few languages i mean right. in scandinavia they speak three languages why don't we do that here i mean you should come out speaking one asian and one european language yeah. and it's it's a uh, that then reflects back in it. You know, why yes. isn't the government paying the schools that every single school child can go to the theatre and concerts once a year, twice a year, free? Yes. It shouldn't be the responsibility of the theatre companies and the orchestras to provide that. That should just be free. Why? Because it's us. Because yes. it reflects us. Because it's part of us. And if you don't get that, I, don't, I think the artists in Australia are phenomenal. I think the audiences are, are hungry, and we've seen over, over decades in festivals how hungry the audiences are for new impulses and whatever. The problem is, yeah. it's the it's the it's bureaucracy the and the and I don't know how you persuade them and the, and the level of arts media. But let's not talk about that. All right. Well, this is a this is a good point to <laughs> pause and um, open throw open to audience for anyone who'd like to ask questions. I think so. There's a question over there. There's a, Sorry, there's a, I should say there's a microphone uh, floating around. Uh, my name is Elspeth Hunted. I was born in Hamburg. I ah. speak several languages. Good time. Um, I'm just interested how you coped with working in a different language and a different culture. Yeah. Well, I, I speak German, um, and uh, over the last 14, 15 years, my German has got to a very fluent level. Um, I didn't learn German at school. I learned French and Chinese. And my Hungarian grandmother, the mother of my father, said to me that um, I have to learn German because it's the language of culture. And she gave me on my 18th birthday her complete Schiller and Goethe books from when she was a school kid in Budapest. And so I grew up with this idea that I had to learn German, I had to learn German, I had to learn German. So I did some of it. Uh, I didn't really do it at uni. And then I got a Goethe Institute scholarship to go to Germany, where I, where I learned, started to learn German properly in Dusseldorf and then um, in Berlin. And then I kept it going. And when I went to Vienna 14 years ago, it was very uh, pigeon German. And over 14 years, I now speak Barikowski German. <laughs> but but it's, it's very natural now. It's exhausting. I, at the end of the day, if I've been speaking for eight hours, my mouth is exhausted. And right. I have to switch my brain off. It's really... Yeah. It's, and also because German... I mean, as you know, the German grammatic, grammatic construction is, is hard going. It's hard work. So... But now what I do is I don't, I don't try and express everything in German. I do what, what you call Dinglish, which is, which is German-English, Deutsch-English. <laughs> and you just put English words in. So I mix, I do a bit of English, I do a bit of Yiddish, I do a bit of Hebrew. <laughs> and and it's somehow it's Barry Kosky German. They find it charming. That's what they tell me. <laughs> um, there's a... Ooh. Yeah. Hi, um... A question about sort of uh, rehearsal processes, and in Australia we have the sort of one-size-fits-all rehearsal process in developing work. You get four weeks or five weeks if it's a new play and then a five-week season. Um, I'd love you to kind of talk a little bit about why we're still stuck in that mentality and also a little bit about uh, repertoire theatre and, uh, you know, how somewhere like, you know, Europe, I mean, they, they're so used to repertoire theatre. I'm working with a a German director at the moment, and he finds this five-week season thing at main stage theatres quite baffling. You know, a show goes on for five weeks, and then it's done, and it closes. 
So if you could talk about yeah. both those things. Very, good question. I'll start with the second one. Um, I've, I've worked in repertoire theatre and I've worked in what the Germans call stagione, which is en suite, which is every day for five weeks, which is mostly what happens in Australia. And without, without doubt, repertoire is better. W without a doubt, like, you know, a hundred times better. Because shows stay in repertoire for sometimes two, three, four, five years. So with the same cast. And you perform it not eight times a week, maybe eight times a month at the most, because the next night you're performing another opera or a play. This means, though, that every performance is special. So you're not just going, oh, it's the matinee, oh, it's the matinee. <laughs> and you get that, you know, you know. And it's like, and of course, you know, I, 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 I use this expression in Germany, show fit, because it doesn't exist in German. You've got to be show fit. And I said, one of the good things about the uh, Anglo system is it makes you show fit, which you can perform eight shows a week. But it's not the right system to perform a show. I don't believe in it at all. I think it's anti-art. You have to, because that's the way the theatres operate. I'm not saying the MTC should go into repertoire because they simply don't have enough government funding. But if they did have enough government funding, they should be a repertoire company. It also means the audience have more choice. Almost the actors develop better. Because you go, oh my god, the season's not finishing in five. If you're in a good show, and it's been a great success, and it's finishing after five weeks, you go, oh, just starting to learn about what the show is. Mm. And of course, in, in Europe, and particularly in Germany, you can be going for like years. The negative side of that is you can see shows that have been in repertoire for eight, nine years, and by God, they should be dead. So, <laughs> but the, the other thing is, I mean, for example, let me give you an example, not an opera. There is a production in the Berliner Ensemble, which is, was Brecht's, uh, Brecht's uh, theatre in Berlin. There is an unbelievable production of uh, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui by Brecht, which was directed, one of the last productions directed by Heine Müller, the German writer and director, with Martin Wutke, who is this unbelievable actor. And, it's, uh, um, and the premiere was over 20 years ago. And so he does it, and he only does it 10 or 15 times a year, and it's always packed, but it's like a cult production. And you can imagine what that means to play at the same role after 20 years. Um, uh, and it means that there's something, yeah, there's something very special. I mean, the, dis the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, but to do that, Unfortunately, you know, money. money. Yeah. But the first, the answer to your first question, it's also, and you're absolutely right. Some plays can be thrown on in five weeks and be brilliant. I've done a show that could be, was done in two weeks, and we went, oh my god, that was the biggest thing success I've ever, I've ever had. So if a, some shows need workshop periods, some shows need five years. Uh, I think that the funding stru uh, structures and systems, unfortunately, I imagine, have now been compounded. The theatre, it's expensive. It's all been like this. And I'm lucky in Berlin because, um, uh, uh, and I, I'm, I, I get a lot of envy from other opera companies, is that they, we have an eight-week rehearsal period for an opera, which no other opera company in Europe has. And that's a tradition that's gone from the 50s right through. Um, and so some shows need it, some shows don't. I think you have to work out. But you're right, it is a problem that not every show uh, can be fitted into a, a structure of rehearsal period. Of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the responsibility of, of funding new work, you mean? Well, the, the, the thing is that, you, you, I mean, it's very clear. You have a funding structure. You go, they're the big guys. They need to be funded. Symphony orchestras, operas, big things. We need those. Then we need a middle ground, which I talked about. Then we need a third of the budget. A third must be spent 
on the development of new work. And it must be spent on the development, as if you're going to get nothing back immediately. Yeah. So it should be allowed to be a catastrophe. There should be, if you're going to say we're going to do new work and we're going to be risk-taking, that means you're going to be risk-taking, which means that maybe you'll lose lots of money. But what you may get is that person may then use that show and in two years' time write a masterpiece or direct a masterpiece. But without that failure, you're never going to get the masterpiece and you never know. So it needs a very articulated, intelligent idea of the importance of financial government money in the arts. And unfortunately, I don't see any improvement. But you still have to keep talking about it. Because maybe one day, there'll be a politician who will come from the desert, and <laughs> his name shall be called. Um, and, and he'll go, and suddenly we'll be in this post-messianic period of Australian culture. <laughs> and I'll come back and run an opera. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, there's a, there's a question. believe in Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, just wait, maybe wait for the microphone, so. If one was planning a trip to Berlin next year, what fabulous Kosky productions could one look forward to seeing? Uh, it depends what time of the year you're going. Um, next year I'm doing, I mean, a lot, all these shows are in repertoire. So you, what, What's the best time if one wants to pack in? <laughs> Okay, I'll tell you the best time will be April. I'll tell you why, end of April, because I am doing a new production of Moses and Aaron, which I've waited 25 years to do, Schoenberg with the wonderful Vladimir Yurovsky, who is the um, uh, chief conductor of the London Philharmonic. And um, Moses and Aaron is this piece by Schoenberg. There's a chorus of 100, there's 200 people on stage, and it's a big piece to commemorate the fact that Schoenberg couldn't finish the opera because he went into exile in 33. And we're doing it for the first time in the Comedy Opera, and it's an amazingly difficult, complex work. But the next night after premiere is West Side Story. So <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very delighted that I am the only opera house in the world where you can see Moses and Aaron and West Side Story <laughs> on a weekend. So. <laughs> and there was a spooky connection. I mean, you know, I keep, they all go, I mean, they love West Side Story, but I keep saying, you know, Leonard Bernstein, I mean, Leonard Bernstein, the whole history of his music and the whole thing he was doing is, is connected to the, they don't get the connect, the Germans, sometimes. And so you have to say to them, you know, Leonard, West Side Story comes out of the tradition of da 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 and you know, da 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 and ah, interesting, but it's <laughs> April. <laughs> No, there's a microphone coming. It's being passed to you. There is a common notion of a director um, in this country and other English-speaking countries as a controller. Uh, whereas uh, your approach to directing is exactly uh, the opposite. You uh, inspire, you're a man of vision, and uh, you that's at least my perception of your work. You try to entice, to win the people for your vision and to celebrate. Um, your directions are more often than uh, not uh, what we would also call adaptations. Dun, in that... Dun, dun, <laughs> yeah. dun, dun. So, 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 okay. Uh, um, 
Could you say something about the difference between the idea of a director as a controller? <laughs> With <laughs> pleasure. Yeah. Dot, dot. Okay, it was bound to come. It was. Um, it's all nonsense. Everything is adaptation. Everyone steals. Everyone borrows. Everyone reworks. I mean, I don't have to say it enough, enough. Everyone said it in this country, not everyone, but a lot of commenters have said it. Shakespeare had not one original idea for one of his stories. Not one. He transformed them into works of genius, works of absolute genius. So he did all the work. But the idea of adaptation is at the heart of the artistic process. You don't get minimalism without 19th century landscape painting. You know, you don't get atonalism without tonality. You don't get the history of music. Western music is a history of theft. <laughs> and you don't get good playwriting by not being inspired and copying other great playwrights. Directors have every right, and you can say, I don't like it. You can say, I hated it. It's not as good. But I'm sorry, Simon Stone is allowed to take a Chekhov play, fuck with it, change it, and say it's after Chekhov. Mm. You may not like it. Mm. And you may say, I much prefer the original. But you can't say you can't do it. Yeah. Because it's not about rules and regulations. Art isn't about that. And the artistic process has to be about saying to, why would you, as a middle-aged white male Australian playwright, why would you want to discourage young artists from exploring any form of artistic enterprise by saying you can't do it. Mm. Why are playwrights in this country so threatened by the idea that someone can adapt and change? You can say, I don't approve it, I don't like it, but you can't say it's the end of culture as we know it. <laughs> Australian theatre was not this Garden of Eden where Mr and Mrs Theatre were all running around <laughs> naked and then this snake called Director came along and went, eat the apple, eat the apple. It's not. It was never this Edenic sort of, oh, once upon a time there was just playwriting. There were just words. And the evil, the snake came and suddenly we are in exile, you know? We are out of Eden. And we look back to that time when. It's all nonsense. It's rubbish. As the Germans say, quatsch. You know, <laughs> it's just quatsch. Let people get on with it. Don't tell a young theatre maker what he can't or she can't do. Just let them do it. Let them have their dreams. Let them discover 20 years later that it was the wrong thing or the right thing to do. But I don't know why a large group of Australian playwrights have to tell a large group of young artists you can't do that. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I will just add a PS that an awful lot of playwrights do a lot of that adapting. Absolutely. And I love so, playwrights. It's also yes. a, mis a misconception that I don't like writing or playwrights. Yeah. Oh, there's a question. I have a... Is this right? Yep. Yes. Uh, I was for a long while associated with a uh, group of playwrights in Melbourne who had an organisation and sought funding uh, to develop the experimental uh, production productions which would help the playwrights to develop. But in that time, I was able to witness what happened to the destruction of a number of such small 
groups uh, at the third level or second, two, the one and a half level. And uh, again and again, the form of funding that was available or likely at all to be given uh, was of the wrong kind in that it uh, put all its weight on a production this year of something which would involve a lot of people, something like a competition for very short plays uh, between writers when what was wanted, was, uh, what was the object of the organisation was to go forward with uh, real full-length plays and get the, the feel of how it was to be involved with the reduction of your work in that. Uh, and I really wonder whether these small organisations, not all to do with writing, but with various uh, angles on uh, developmental work in Melbourne, uh, would be destroyed one after the other by the format of funding where if you had any money it was to be spent on something which was quite aside from and destructive of your main purpose. Do you have any ideas to help? <laughs> <laughs> well, solve everything now, Barry. Um, uh, if I could just like quickly just try and analyse a little bit what you said. I, I, I think also it's complex. I don't think... Funding doesn't mean just, like, vast sums of money that are given out. Funding comes with responsibility. I mean, there are very, very good people that have worked in funding in Australia in the last 30, 40 years. Very, very good administrative people and very good people on all the funding panels that I know have been working and do work. And they, they are in a dilemma. Let me tell you, these, I've, I've been in these funding meetings. They're not just like, oh, should we give it there? It's usually a really torturous process of, oh, my God, how do we make this little hors d'oeuvre, because it is this, it's not a meal, it's an hors d'oeuvre, how do we make this little bit of anchovy and sour cream and chives <laughs> go to thousands of artists around the country? Who do we fund? If we fund that, we're not going to be able to fund that. And that's not the problem. The problem is that it's an hors d'oeuvre and not a steak. So until you get the steak on the plate, it's always going to be a problem. You're never going to solve it. You're never going to solve it. You somehow have to all convince, this young generation uh, has to convince people that uh, elitism in sport is much more than elitism in arts and that I don't understand why the country has an, no problem to fund a few people millions of dollars to jump over a high, bar, high jump bar every four years and has a problem to increase the arts funding, which more people see and experience. Yes. So, let's not get into that. But, you know, it's all about the hors d'oeuvre. You've got to change the, turn the anchovy into a steak. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how you do that, but anyway. Any more questions? Oh, this one. Um, it was very moving to hear your uh, almost a feel of return to Berlin to discover a cultural, political history, the Jewish, Jewish connections. And um, more, I just was interested coming back to Australia, where if, uh, you would have read, you would know about that 153 refugees are floating around in the high seas and, and we as a country aren't able to, to even know anything about their names or their history. And I'm just wondering how you feel about that in a larger political well, me, theatre. Yeah. Well, let me tell you. What's, what, is, what Australia is in the news about at the moment is not about Thorpey being gay, because we all knew it anyway, but he's not about, it's not about that. And it's not about the latest Kylie Minogue CD. 
And it's not about the latest um, film with fabulous Australian actors. It's about the boat people. It's on the front pages of all the European newspapers. And you can only hang your head in shame. Because I have a number of young Germans working for me who come and say, I don't understand how this can happen. And so you, and I'll ask them, I said, what do you mean? They said, but isn't Australia a country where everyone arrived by boat except for the original population? <laughs> and now, as a prison, and now you're putting people outside the prison on another prison on another island. And I go, yeah, duh, get it. <laughs> um, but the idea that that goes on in the 21st century in one of the 10 wealthiest countries in the world, because there's the other thing that strikes me when I come back here is how stinking rich the country is, that in this wealthy, wealthy environment with only how many people in this country? 17 million. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. You can't allow a few thousand people on compassionate grounds into the country to start a new life. It's despicable. And you should, Australia should hang its head in shame. I don't want to sort of do it because we all agree here. But it really, it's front page news. And unfortunately, let me tell you, right-wing governments in Germany and France now use the Australian policy as examples of what they should be doing in Europe. The idea of Australia being used in this example by a right-wing German and French political party as what should happen to East Germany and the Middle East and the Moroccan boat people going into Spain and Italy is despicable. So I think that you... I mean, the best way always with Australian politicians is you've got to shame them somehow. He's a you know. shame, shame. I mean, I, I came back and saw Rick Muir on... Someone showed me... A friend showed me... Rick Muir? Yes. Yeah. I mean, spectacularly horrifying. <laughs> I mean, really, but not, not funny. It's not funny. It's serious. Yeah. And the boat, the, the irony that most Australians wouldn't understand the irony is the irony, you know, because it's horrifying. So, but I'm speaking to the converted here, but I don't know how you get that out into the broader picture because it is horrifying, horrifying. But I'm telling you, it's front page news in German newspapers and on the television. And it's not something I feel proud of to have to sort of explain to um, my colleagues in Berlin of all places. Right. Barry, you're clearly not going. I'm here. Oh. <laughs> you're clearly not going to come back to work in Australia. No, I, I, no, no, I don't never say that. Never okay, say that. Not to live. Not to, to live. live. Yeah. You're doing great work in Berlin. What about the future? Do you have plans or dreams or ambitions? I'm about to sign my contract extension of my contract. My contract was for five years till 2017, um, and in a few months I'll sign it till 2020. Because the Germans like to plan. <laughs> and um, I thought about it saying, ah, oh, you know, 10 years. But I thought, you know, five years is not enough. There's too many shows I want to do. There's too many artists I want to bring in, you know. You know, I want Simon Stone to come. I did, uh, Benedict comes and works with me. I want Simon Stone to do an opera, but he'll have to come in 2018. I, you know, I want to there to be stuff happening. And I want to be able to do, you know, I want to do a, a new version of Fiddler on the Roof for Berlin in five years' time. I can't do that yet. So... Um, and there's operas that I want to do, and also I feel a responsibility to my team that I stay a bit long. And I always think 10 years is the cutoff. You know, no more than 10 years. There should be a contract in every single theatre director and general manager and whatever that after 10 years, curtains. Next. You know, I used to call it Horlicks time. You know? <laughs> you've done your bit, you've had your go, move on. Let someone else do it. I don't think anyone should stay in an arts organisation for longer than 10 years. And I think there should always be this turnover of new people and whatever. But I love Berlin. It's in the middle of Europe. I work everywhere. I would desperately love to come back and do a show here uh, in Australia. And there's always trying to be any opportunities to do that. But I can't leave my 450 kinder uh, in Berlin for two months and to come here. And so the best opportunity, unfortunately, you have for the next few years is to come to Berlin. Oh. Yeah. 
Um, we've got time for one more question. Who wants the last one? One. Need a drink now. Yeah. Way, way, way up in the gods. I can barely see you. Um, just a question about um, the cheaper ticket prices in Berlin and whether that translates to a more diverse audience. Yes, it does. We have um, we sold 219,000 seats last season, which was a 20% increase from the season before. I know these figures now that I'm running everybody. And we have a f an, an average audience age of 49, which is 15 years younger than the other opera houses, and a diversity of audiences that is quite interesting because one night it'll be very opera-opera, the next night it'll be like very young. You can never, ever... Uh, see what the audience... You have no idea some nights what the audience is going to be. What's very important is it's, you know, it's jeans, T-shirts, it suits... No one dresses up at the commercial opera. No one ever has. It's always been like a sort of folks theatre where people can just come. In fact, people who are in suits... I mean, you never see anyone in a long dress or a big hairdo. Well, <laughs> unless they're a Russian whore with a Russian... <laughs> but, um, but... And we get a few of them, too. Um, but... Um, uh, the, it, as I said before, it, uh, uh, it's, it is electrifyingly different what happens with the audience um, mix when you lower ticket prices. Mm. It's is one of the three top reasons for having large government subsidies is that it makes it affordable and that no one can say, I cannot go when something is less than a film ticket. And ha sometimes, in our case, half the price of a film ticket on a Friday or Saturday night uh, at the film. But it's like, it does make a difference. And it does make a difference to how people own the theatre and own the work and respect the work. It, it, and it makes it enjoyable for the artists because they know they're not performing to people that can just afford it. So it, it makes a huge difference. But well, if I just... Are we finished? Oh, just that. One last thing. No, I just yeah. want to say, because I'm aware that there are a lot of people from the, the neon and a lot of young artists in, in Australia, uh, here at the, uh, uh, in, the, in the auditorium, and I just want to say something which I think is also very important. Please do not set your uh, high jump bar as being overseas until you're ready to go overseas. It's very dangerous to think that, oh, my goal is to go somewhere else. It is very important to find your voice here and to find your work, the voice, here through your work. Because one of the reasons why I've been successful in Europe is for two reasons. Firstly, because I managed to find the expression of my theatrical voice from doing shows in sheds and for Playbox and for small theatre companies and then bigger theatre companies and allowing myself to develop and find the system of, 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 of how I create theatre in Australia before I went overseas. If you think my goal is to go overseas straight away before finding your voice, you'll be lost in a cacophony. No one will hear you. No one will be interested. You have to create your identity here, then you can go overseas. Because it's interesting, as I was telling you earlier, I have never thought Australia, being Australian, what does that mean? Uh, here I never felt Australian. I always think I was born here, but what does that mean? But I am constantly being referred to in Germany as Australian. And I keep telling my colleagues and friends, what does that mean? And they just go, it means you're not German. <laughs> and 
I go, well, what does that mean in the work? And they go, I don't know. There's just something about the work that's completely not German. And yet it speaks to them. So in a way, in a weird way, I've reconciled all my anger and pain with being Australian through being able to be Australian without being Australian. <laughs> and so I just think it's very important that, you know, any artist starting out is a little flower. We're keeping with the garden metaphor. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't get the nourishment you need from somewhere else, get it through yourself and try and find the way and fight for it. And when you're ready at the right time, then you can spread your wings and fly away. Or maybe not fly away, because also there's a spectacular history of genius Australian artists who never worked overseas and who should have had international acclaim, that never got the acclaim yeah. that they should have for all sorts of different reasons. So it's not a sign of success. I'm overseas because I love opera, and the opera that I want to do and can do cannot be done in this country. That's why, but if it could be done in this country, who knows? But I just want to say to all you young artists, really nourish yourselves and at the right time spread your wings and fly and just try and turn the anchovy into a steak. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Barry.